Life Audio. Do you sometimes doubt if you're truly hearing God's voice or if it's really your own? Or have you been in a season where it feels like He's completely silent? Have you been praying for a way to learn how to hear His voice more clearly? Hey friends, I'm Rachel, host of the Hearing Jesus Podcast. If you are ready to grow in your faith and to confidently step into your identity in Christ, then join me as we dig deep into God's Word so you can learn to live out your faith in your everyday life. Hi friends, welcome back to the Hearing Jesus Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Grohl. Today, we're working through Matthew chapter 5, what is commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going through the first part today, which is the Beatitudes. Maybe you're familiar with that. If not, then that's great. We'll dive into it today. I'm reading from the New American Standard version of the Bible, and it's starting at verse 1 of chapter 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by people. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Your light must shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, much of this language is probably very familiar to you, but I want to point out a couple things as we study this passage, because I think it's important to understand It's foundational for our understanding and our integration of this content into our daily lives. The Sermon on the Mount was essentially a summary of some of the fundamental teachings of Jesus. What Jesus was doing was he was giving his interpretations of the law of Moses. And the goal of that is to, of course, encourage obedience to the law. The body of teaching from a rabbi would have been called a halakha in Hebrew, which means to walk. The Sermon on the Mount was the halakha of Jesus, or essentially his path to walk. And it sets him apart from the other Jewish religious leaders of the time because the way he explains things is different than they did. You know, the authority of Jesus goes beyond just interpreting the law of Moses. We saw that yesterday when he was healing and delivering people. But sometimes what we see, especially in Matthew chapter 5, is that he actually revises the Torah because his authority is greater than Moses who originally gave the Torah. Some examples of that are later found in his teaching on divorce and things like the oaths. 
It's also important to remember that this is not one of those times when Jesus is teaching to a large crowd. And I think sometimes we think that because he's on the side of a mountain. No, instead, his primary audience was his disciples. He was sitting on the ground with his group of disciples. It's essentially discipleship training. Luke, who is one of the other gospel writers, writes about this, but he places it in a different location, which leads us to believe that Jesus taught on these things often and more than once. You know, I have had the privilege of being able to walk alongside a lot of leaders over my career in ministry. And there are certain things I'm just known for saying the heartbeat of what God has put inside of me. And it's interesting because some of those same people that have gone on to lead will repeat some of the things that I've said to them. And I have to believe that's kind of what's going on here. What Matthew has done is he's essentially collected these teachings of Jesus into one long sermon that may or may not have been given all at once. That may or may not have been the case. It might have just been a summary of all of them put together in one place. What this does is it helps parallel Jesus in contrast to Moses. And remember, what Matthew's trying to do is reveal Jesus to this Jewish audience as this new Moses, because up until this time, Moses was their authority when it came to being this representative for God. The parallel here is obvious. They're now on this new Mount Sinai, so to speak, and Jesus is speaking as the authoritative word of God. What's included in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, in the general sense, what Jesus is doing is he's challenging the idea of the rich and the powerful and this military way of delivering the people of Israel. That's what they were expecting in the Messiah. And Jesus is essentially saying that's not how it's going to be. What the Jewish people were longing for was political power and vengeance. And what Jesus is doing is he's redirecting them towards meekness and mercy and peace. And this gives some insight as to who really is blessed as they're living in God's kingdom. How do you think this was received? Well, it's likely that his listeners were probably frustrated. They had this expectation of this military leader that would come and establish a physical kingdom. And instead, Jesus is talking about this spiritual kingdom. He's talking a lot to the marginalized of society, the underprivileged, the hurting, the broken, the powerless. And this message would have been really appealing to them because they could be a part of this kingdom. That's why the gospel is good news. Going verse by verse, there's a couple things I just want to make sure you're aware of that I want to point out to you. In verse one and two, it says, Jesus sat down. And that was really the typical position that a teacher would take in Judaism when he was teaching his disciples. And we see Jesus take that position regularly. It's essentially this training of the disciples where Jesus is sitting down alongside of them, sitting with them until they get it. I think that's such a beautiful picture of what discipleship is. And then it goes on to talk about this list of Beatitudes, the blessed R's. And that name Beatitude comes from this Latin root word, Beatitudo. And the first word in Latin is Beati, which is in each of these statements. And that translates into the Greek as Markarios, which in the English, that's blessed. We also see a couple different things going on. We see two different states of being. The first is theirs is. So in the first beatitude and the last beatitude, we see that he's saying theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's essentially a bookend and it's a common literary device that they would use in that time frame called the inclusio. And it's essentially this indication that the kingdom life is a present possession of the disciples. And it's also a present possession for you and me. In the Beatitudes 3 through 7, 
we see a future tense. That's they will be things like comforted. They will be comforted. That's a blessing that will be experienced in the future when the kingdom is firmly established completely on earth. It doesn't mean that they won't experience comfort here. It just means that they won't experience true comfort until that already yet tension is resolved and the kingdom has come on earth. When it says in verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit. I think it's important to make note of the fact that the kingdom of God belongs to the people that have no resources, no material wealth, nothing to help them to get them before God. But yet these are the poor that Jesus has come to, to announce this good news of the gospel. And it's those people that the kingdom of heaven belongs to. That is such good news for those that were living in poverty then and now. In verse five, it talks about the meek. And I think a better way to describe that is the word gentle. That's how it would have been translated back then. And so that's essentially the people that don't assert themselves over others to advance their own agenda or their own cause. And it doesn't just apply to somebody being weak in that we understand that because that word was used to describe Jesus. It's about the gentleness of heart, not necessarily the weakness, as a lot of people tend to think. And then pure in heart. Pure in heart really actually means the mind in verse 8. Because the Greek understanding, remember, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written largely in Greek. So at this time frame, that Greek understanding was that the heart was the seat of the emotions, the will, and the intellect. So that really is saying, blessed are the pure in mind. The rabbis at this time were developing this complex system of laws that they had to maintain, people had to maintain for this idea of purification and that idea of being clean and what that means. And what it was doing is it was dividing the everyday people that could not uphold that. And so this pure heart really focuses on this idea of the heart will produce a purity of behavior, not the opposite. And I think that's important for us to get today too. Pure in heart or pure in mind, it really starts with what's in here. And then we eventually see it on the outside. And then lastly, I want to talk a little bit about the salt. In verse 13, it talks about salt. And let me just tell you that we all know <laughs> that salt can be powerful. I had a I had a celebration dinner not too long ago where we got a expensive cut of steak and it came out and it looked beautiful, but it was sitting on this bed of salt. It was essentially a plate that was made of salt. And while it was pink and it was glistening and it looked amazing, a couple bites in and I could not eat it anymore. The salt was overpowering. And I think salt can sometimes be like that. It is a small but effective presence in our world. And so if we're thinking through what salt means in this passage, you know, salt could mean a lot of different things. It could mean the seasoning. In that time frame, it could have meant fertilizer. It was a way to preserve things so that it could have been talking about the preserving element of salt. It was highly valued in their culture. And in the Old Testament, it was even used as an element of judgment. The word that we have today, salary, comes from the word salt because originally payments were made in salt. Sometimes it was used in cooking fires to help them burn better. Essentially, a salt is a compound, though. And so when we think about what this verse means, when it says, how can salt lose its saltiness? What does that even mean? 
Well, there's a couple things it could have meant. And that culture, especially remember, scripture was written for us, but it was not originally written to us. He was speaking to the disciples in a different time frame. In that time frame, there were rock formations that contained deposits of sodium chloride and meat and fish were packed into these rocks for preservation purposes. After a period of time, what would happen is the salt would leach out of the rocks into those foods, just like my salt block did on, on my steak. And so eventually those rocks were no longer good for their saltiness and they had to be thrown out. Another thing that Jesus may have been alluding to was the fact that salt blocks were used by bakers to line the floors of their ovens. And after a lot of intense heat was used, eventually that would cause those blocks of salt to crystallize and there was a change in their composition and they wouldn't be salty anymore. They had to be thrown out. Or Jesus could have been referring to the salt that they collected from the Dead Sea that that was evaporated. And what would often happen is crystals from other minerals, especially gypsum, would have been formed and would have been together because of the calcium sulfate in the seawater. So salt and gypsum were often mixed together in these different deposits. Well, people would use those deposits, those saline deposits as their salts, but it wasn't pure. And so that mixture eventually would lose its taste. Well, what's that have to do with our passage? I think what Jesus was getting at is this idea that true disciples, people that have really experienced what it's like to have a relationship with Jesus, they're not going to lose their salt. Now, sometimes there are people that claim to have faith in Jesus that may have only made a surface level commitment or a commitment of convenience, and they didn't really go through that true heart change. They may even be imposters. In Jesus' day, they had a lot of imposter disciples. And so for those people, it would have almost been like that salt, this external flavoring that eventually was going to lose its flavor. I think what he's talking about is this idea of maybe those people never had the kingdom experience in the first place. While we don't necessarily know, what we do know is the fact that salt is necessary for everyday life. It's an element that is necessary in our bodies. It's something that we rely on heavily in the States and other areas around the world. And so if we take it that way, it's a metaphor to basically say that by the very presence of the disciples of Jesus being in the world around them, they are necessary for the welfare of the world. And I think it's the same way for you and I. And then lastly, the city on the hill metaphor. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. And it might have been that he was talking about Jerusalem because Jerusalem is a city that sits on Mount Zion, and that's considered to be the light of the world. But they were also now at this point when he was explaining these things to him, sitting on a hill outside of Galilee. So Jesus could have been just using this metaphor of a local city off in the distance to use as an illustration. I think either way, it says something pretty powerful to us that our light, when it's shining brightly, can cannot be hidden away, but instead we should extend that out for all to see. So given that insight, I'm going to go back through, I'm going to reread this chapter five of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and began to teach them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You all are salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by people. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Your light must shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for the way that your word reveals your heart and the way that we see Jesus sit down with his disciples to sit with them so they get it, Lord God. I thank you for the ways that the words of Jesus still ring true today, that the saltiness that he has given us and that light that he has put inside of us, that it still is a testimony to those around us. God, I pray for my friends that are listening today that you would empower them to be the salt and the light in the dark world around them. God, would you even right now burden their heart to share this good news, this gospel message with those in their own lives that might be the marginalized of society, the hurting, the lost, the broken, because the gospel is such good news for those that are powerless to achieve those things on their own. God, I thank you that you continue to work in and through your word. I pray for a blessing and hedge of protection over my friends today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, guys, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Hey friends, before you go, I want to make sure you know about our Patreon page. The Patreon page is really a place to gain all sorts of resources specifically for the Hearing Jesus podcast and the Hearing Jesus for Kids podcast. There's a specific and dedicated private Facebook group, which is a place for me to interact with you, to pray with you, to answer questions. I'd love it for you to join us there. And there's also another level that gives you the inside scoop on everything else that's going on. The journaling prompts are there. If you've been with us for some time, you know that I usually do journaling prompts that helps us get that information from the head to the heart. We have a downloadable daily prayer prompt that helps you get that information processed in a way that it affects your daily life. There's also a Bible reading tracker on there. There's bonus episodes, lots of things on an ongoing basis, a place where you can get all the resources to help you grow in your faith. And the second thing I want to mention to you is the Dawn app, which if you've never heard of that before, I have good news for you. I just recently recorded a series for the Dawn app and also did some writing for them. And it's a daily Bible study and prayer app that is completely free. The link for that is in the show notes. And then the last thing I'm super excited about, I want to tell you that we're going to start having opportunities for travel. This is going to look a couple different ways, depending on what you're looking for, but it's going to cover things like mission trips in-person retreats, and also eventually a Bible study trip to Rome. What I'm doing right now is I'm getting everybody's contact information so we can start communicating about what that might look like. So if you are interested in any of that, you can head to shehears.org for more information. I want to take just a second to thank the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us on the podcast. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in their network. They've got shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. 
Hey friends, if this podcast helps encourage, empower, or equip you in your walk with God, I would love it if you would head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. That's the number one way you can support my show. You can also join our free Facebook community or Instagram page where I share inspirational tips, bonus content, resources, and prayer throughout the week. Hey, I want you to know I'm praying for you. Know that you are so loved. Keep going.